0: Afternoons with me, I'm Bill Arnold. I'm looking forward to our time together today. Hope your day's been going well. Here in the Twin Cities area, we've got quite a bit of rain coming down, which is kind of nice for my desperately pathetic lawn. It's in that yellow, crunchy phase right now. Somebody said it's just dormant. It will come back with water, but that is to be determined. So I'm glad to see the rain. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are, and I'm so glad you're going to be with me, hopefully, for the whole two hours, because Jim Wallace is going to be coming on the program in just a second, one of my all-time favorite guests. And then also uh, Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall are going to be uh, with Peter Kapsner and I in hour two. We're going to talk about trauma. So that's the plan for today. So I always say get out your Bible, because you'll probably want to reference it at some point. I'll start today with uh, a verse that was sent to me by uh, a listener named Kevin. He said in 1 John five nineteen, he didn't say the Bible says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. That is an important reminder. Jim Wallace is, uh, J. Warner Wallace, I should say, is a regular guest on the show and also a very uh, accomplished, best-selling author and speaker, and he's in demand everywhere he goes. I'm so fortunate to have him come on the show regularly. I always feel unworthy, but uh, here he is today once again, and he's um, at Cold Case Christian coldcasechristianity.com. That's where you can always find his materials. And uh, Jim, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it so much. As you know, I enjoy being with you.
0: I I feel like you're being truthful, which is very flattering to me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, of course I am. Come on now. No, no, I know.
0: I know. Uh, But I always say to people that I know, go to Cold Case Christianity. Jim's got so much great material, videos, blogs, articles, and you're so generous with your stuff, and you've got so many great books that are for sale that you should, I say to people, you should get at least one, and then get one, and then you'll end up buying others.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that, of course. As an author, I can't ask for more than that. So well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's great.
0: Yeah. Um, but I know you got a book coming out uh, soon, Person of yeah, Interest, that's right. Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. Again, great title.
1: Well, and a lot of this is just, I, I was trying to think myself too, you know, uh, you would never have gotten me to open a Bible to look at the person of Jesus. You'd have, you have to make the case some other way, but yeah. it probably would have been, you know, so I'm just kind of retracing my own steps because people always ask me, well, how did you get to this point? Well, a lot of it is just retracing steps, and so I, I tried to do that in this, and, and really I took an approach that I don't think anyone has ever really taken that I've seen. I wish somebody had at least had bits and pieces. I could have uh, made my research a little easier, but... But a lot of it was just trying to find clues in places where maybe most people don't look, and a lot of that's what we do, right? I mean, as far as working cold cases, you're, I mean, there's always that trite expressions you're looking for the thing that's hidden in plain sight, or you know. But a lot of it is, look, you, you can't reopen the case unless you find something that they didn't find 30 years earlier, and now you're behind the curve by 30. So so it's it's harder sometimes, but. Um, Anyway, as we tried to do with this book, we tried to say, hey, look, if we had no scripture at all, if we had no New Testament scripture at all, if, if some nefarious regime came in and destroyed every New Testament and every manuscript in history that ever led to a New Testament, could we still make a case for Jesus of Nazareth? Actually, I think you could reconstruct the entire story of Jesus if nothing, and not even using a single page of scripture. If, if all you did was use those aspects of culture that matter most, even to non-Christians, you could reconstruct the story of Jesus without ever opening a page in your Bible.
0: Mm-hmm. So, what will this book help me do? I know you're going to you're going to encourage us to be good detectives, aren't you?
1: Well, a lot of that, of course, you know, I'm always going to tell cop stories. So, I mean, I've got a case, one case in particular that I'm kind of recalling through the entire course of the book, chapter by chapter. I'm walking you through, as we solve that mystery, we'll be looking at the parallel issues related to Jesus. So I I try to do a lot of that in most of my books. But to be honest, I learned a lot writing kids' books. Um, And one of the things I learned was is that young people love to read mysteries And you can actually import a lot of kind of logical processing and how to think critically into a story. People are actually more inclined to to track along with you. And so, a lot of what I did here was take what I took what I learned from writing kids books and writing basically an adult version. It's 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 fully illustrated. It's got I tried to illustrate it like a kids book. Mm Or on children's books, I make sure that I have at least some graphic element on every single page. And that's kind of where – this was 400 uh, illustrations to, to make this book work. So I spent three months just, just doing nothing but illustrating um, after I finished writing it. So, so a lot of this is trying to visualize for people how strong the case for Jesus is and why. If you Look, what the things that mattered most to me as a non-Christian were the things that I was trained in before I was a detective. I was trained as an artist, right? So it was literature, art, music, education science, I think most non-believers would say those things are of high value to them. Well, it turns out those five aspects of culture are so deeply indebted to Jesus of Nazareth and his followers that they would not be where we are today in history if not for Jesus of Nazareth. So it turns out the things that matter to you most, if you're not even paying attention to Jesus, you're actually indebted to Jesus for those things. Mm -hmm. You just haven't been paying attention.
0: Yeah. I always say, too, people are going to learn a lot just to... um, look at your cold case detective brain to see how you think and to see what you mull over. Um, And I know you cover a case in this book coming up, which is not the case that I am am so drawn to. And I just actually sent that case to my program director today. I said, you've got to watch this. And of course, that's the story of Lynn Knight, which I find absolutely fascinating. And the way you thought and the way you think in cold cases, are you just alone in, in... alone with your thoughts? How do you do all this great thinking? Encourage well by, the time
1: I was, well, by the time I was working cold cases, you know, I was kind of able to draw my own schedule a little bit okay. because I was in an unusual niche that I was able to, And you know, a lot of it's creative. A lot of it is, is visual. You're trying to think about how to visualize the case for a jury. So my department was very good about letting me kind of call my own hours. And so I was really, I started to run, you know, long before that, but I was really You'd be surprised what you think about while you're running. So, so I run with a phone, and I'm constantly sending emails to myself to, or ch- chase this down. Oh, think about this, or to call this guy and ask this question. And if I don't do that, you know, I'll forget. So, my email inbox is filled with <laughs> like a to dos for me, right? It's like yeah. all the stuff I got to do, and and that's been really helpful for me. And a lot of it is you have to have time to step away. And think, create. I think what people don't realize is we are designed in the image of God, and one of the, the, the characteristics of God is that He is a creator. if We call Him the Creator, right? So, so I mean that, that we have, are endowed with this creative nature, and sometimes we take that for granted. We think, well, the job I'm in is not creative, though. Well, actually, you know, you, you might be able to find a creative way to, to exercise, you know, to, to, to exercise that creativity in your own job that you may have thought prior to now was not a creative job. Well, maybe it's just, maybe you haven't only really thought about it creatively. And so I, I here I am working these cases and, and I'm trying to be creative. Like I'm trying to think, okay, what are the relationships, the visual relationships or the, the logical relationships between different pieces of evidence? And, you know, one of the great ways to think about this, and my, my partner in crime for all those years, it was district attorney is John Lewin. He's actually in that that uh, Lyndon Knight case you were talking about from Dateline. And, and he's now doing the Robert Durst case in Los Angeles, which is a big multi-state case. and It's on YouTube every single day live. And you can kind of get a sense of how we think by watching how he's put together the Durst case because there's lots of these little pieces that you're thinking, why does that matter? Why does that little thing matter? Now, when he's done, he will draw them all into a visual diagram that you'll be able to see, oh, now I get it. I see how this piece is a piece of the puzzle. That So what we're doing when we make an arrest or when we make a case is we're thinking about where all those puzzle pieces are going to land. I used to, when I first brand new officer, you would think, oh, you know, do I have enough probable cause to make the arrest? But not everyone who gets arrested has enough evidence to hold them for a filing so you start to learn, no, I need to know – I need to have enough pieces of the puzzle to not only arrest him but to make sure that it gets all the way to filing. And as you get even more mature, you realize, well, no, a lot of cases that are filed aren't actually won in trial. You don't get a conviction. So now I need to know at the very beginning as I'm putting cuffs on somebody, do I have enough of these puzzle pieces that ultimately he will – get the case will get filed and there will be a conviction at the end of the process? Well, now you're thinking many, many dominoes downstream. From where you are at the point of arrest. But thinking like that, thinking about how the puzzle pieces will fall together will make for much more successful. I'm not looking to take people to jail just so they can get cut loose 48 hours later. Um, That does happen sometimes. You've got probable cause. You meet the legal requirements, but they don't actually stay in custody. You know, I want this guy to be a ref. I don't put cuffs on somebody. I want this ultimately to end up in a criminal conviction because I've thought about it that far in advance.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you do some of this casework, Jim, over your career, I know you're retired now, but there was oftentimes uh, no body, no, no, um, uh, no evidence that you were able to uh, use conclusively. You had to piece everything together, just like you said.
1: Yeah, this was, is one of the reasons why I took this approach to this book. You know, I, yeah. I, I look people have asked me what's in the crime scene for Jesus. What's what's the crime is basically scripture. What's in that crime what happened in those three years? That's documented by scripture, it's by eyewitness accounts, do we trust them? But if we get outside that crime scene, like if you didn't have a scripture then same thing happens in nobody murders, where you've got somebody who's kills his wife and gets rid of the body, and now you don't know what you know, he, he covers the crime scene, says she ran away, nobody investigates it like a murder for the first five or six years. Then finally we pick it up as a murder, and now it's too late. There's no crime scene, there's no body, there's no physical evidence. How do you make that case in front of a jury? Well, I always tell the jurors that look we, this, the day that she went missing was like a bomb went off. But there was a long fuse that burned, burned toward the explosion of that bomb. And then after the bomb exploded, there was shrapnel all over the place. So what we're going to do is show you the fuse and the fallout to demonstrate what happened in the crime scene. Yeah. Well, the same thing can happen for Jesus. You can demonstrate the truth of Jesus just from the fuse and fallout of history.
0: Can we talk about that when we come back? Absolutely. Yeah. If it sounds like uh, J. Warner Wallace is a detective, you've got that right. He's a uh, former uh, cold case homicide detective with Los Angeles. He's now retired, but he's a author, writer, communicator, does it all. Does it all very well. Take a short break. Be right back. If you have a question for Jim, text it to me, 877-933-2484.
1: Thanks for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm Carmen LeBurge. If you enjoy what you're listening to here, consider subscribing to other great Faith Radio podcasts like mine. Search Mornings with Carmen LeBurge at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts and hit subscribe.
0: Welcome back. J. Warner Wallace is my guest. And Jim, I already got a listener saying J. Warner Wallace has a new book coming out. This is a huge Christian apologetics event. Is it available for pre order? <laughs>
1: Oh my gosh, I hope that.
0: <laughs> I know,
1: because I, I entered into this whole uh, writing and authoring books and working as a Christian case maker later in life, it always strikes me as funny when I, I can wonder, how did I get here? How did this, <laughs> God is so good, right, that he has allowed me to contribute in some small way, but I always kind of scratch my head and think, like, really? You think this? Apparently you don't realize how insignificant I really am, but I'm <laughs> glad you at least think that I'm not. So yes, we have a website called personofinterestbook.com. Personofinterestbook.com, and we're giving away a ton of free stuff for the pre-order. So I'm glad you asked because we created a video for this, a long stage video on one of the chapters from the book. Uh, a free ebook comes along with it, and uh, Bible inserts, and uh, you know all that kind of stuff is part of the pre-order. So if you go to Personofinterestbook.com. Uh, com, person of interest book, because there's a lot of person of interest movies and fictional novels and all kinds of stuff. And we really wanted to to kind of shape this out as a murder mystery first. So if you look at the cover of our book, it really does look like a murder mystery. And that was the point. I mean, Mm -hmm. there is a murder mystery that's part of this. But it turns out we're trying to do more here, Bill, to just say, look, he had an impact in these five – actually, there's a sixth theory I didn't even talk about, which is world religion. I mean, it turns out that every religion that matters in the world today hat-tips Jesus in some way. It, it it mentions, merges, or modifies its own beliefs to shape out a place for Jesus at the table. There's a place for Jesus in the t- at the table in Buddhism and Hinduism and Baha'i and and, and Islam and, and uh, Ahmadi Islam. I mean, all of the world's largest religious groups – have got a place for Jesus. Either they mention him specifically, or their leaders have, have have revered Jesus in one way or another, and found a place to position him within their hierarchy. And, and this is amazing if you think about it, because uh, even the, the religions like the uh, Attis worship and and um, uh, Mithras worship, uh, worshippers who existed before Jesus ended up modifying their behaviors to accommodate Jesus in their religious worldviews. At all the same time, Jesus is going to say, "Uh, it doesn't go the other way, folks. Um, You can all talk about me, but I'm not talking about you because there's only one way to the Father. Mm -hmm. I'm the only way to the Father. So although everyone reveres Jesus and points to Jesus, Jesus does not do that in reverse. Uh, And why? Why would that be the case? Why would this insignificant... Ancient sage from a small, relatively unknown, meaningless little town, born in one meaningless little town, raised in another meaningless little town, never more than probably 200 miles from where he lived. This guy who never commanded an army, never wrote a book, never had a social media platform. This is the guy. This, the guy who, who was basically didn't even have a grave to be buried in. His, his friends all deserted him. I mean, he was persecuted most of his ministry. You're going to tell me that this is the guy who changes our calendar. This is the guy who shapes the most significant aspects of culture revered by atheists. This guy does this? Look at everyone in the first century. And say, well, which one of these characters in the first century was significant enough to change our calendars? You won't even know their names compared to Jesus. Yeah. Look at all the world leaders who have ever lived. None of them were significant enough to change our calendar. A lot of those folks, if I put them on a list for you, you got I did know that guy even existed. <laughs> uh, I mean, look at all the gods that have ever been worshipped by any people group. Put them all on a list. Tell me who it is who's changed culture more than Jesus of Nazareth. Yet this guy with that, that upbringing, with that small, meager, modest upraising, that, that guy is the guy who changes everything? How could that be? Now, it seems to me that the only way that could be is if – look, I, I expect if, if God actually entered into his creation, you'd expect him to shape and impact every aspect of culture, Right? So it might just be that we're we're looking at a person of interest who is far more than a person. And that's where I think you can make a case for the deity of Christ. But what we're trying to do with every aspect of his, his thumb, his fingerprint on culture is we're trying to show people that it's not just that he had a huge impact on these areas. It's that you could reconstruct the story of Jesus almost line by line from the cumulative case you can make. Let me give you an example of this. It turns out education – most universities today are not don't favor Jesus or the teaching of Jesus. As a matter of fact, don't favor Christians or the teaching of Christianity. Yet, the modern university as you know it today is tied directly to Jesus and his followers. It comes out of the monasteries. It comes out of the cathedral schools. The first three modern universities came out of those kinds of settings at Bologna, at Paris, at Oxford. These schools then birthed a number, dozens of other schools that continue the tradition. If you'd Googled if you look on any site that measures the top universities in a, in the world today, you will find that the top 15 universities are were all founded by Christians, by Christ followers, even though those universities may not pay attention to Jesus at all today. They were all founded by Jesus followers and They taught courses primarily in buildings that at the time when they originally were created were buildings of devotion. Sometimes they were chapels that they actually taught courses in. If you went and visited the top 15 campuses, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus simply from the buildings and the charters of those universities. You could destroy all of Christian scripture. You could still reconstruct the story of Jesus from education by simply visiting the campuses of the top 15 universities in the world today. Unless you're willing to destroy all of the top 15 universities, you will not be able to erase the name of Jesus by simply destroying the Scripture.
0: That's so true. I want to say the original charter for Harvard was the purpose of this school is to honor Jesus Christ.
1: That's Oh, you see, yeah, I've, and I've included all the, the amount of research that went into this book. I had two research assistants. It was a constant, you know. I mean, I don't even think I could have written the book if not for COVID. Okay, <laughs> the COVID, yeah. the COVID year canceled all of our, our our speaking engagements for the most part for about three months there, and those were the three months that I just sat by the. It was during the winter, just sat by the fire and just bang this thing out, try to figure out, you know, what chase down all the evidence. But, for example, to try to figure out, uh, without traveling to the campuses themselves, but only using photographs from the buildings on the campuses, that's why I know that my investigation could even be more robust, because if I was to go there and really sift through it—but I you don't need to. His his fingerprints are so deeply ingrained in education that even a cursory visit, you can reconstruct the story of Jesus. Wow.
0: J. Warner Wallace is my guest. We're talking about his book, Person of Interest. And Jim, I swear I had a a New Testament theologian tell me, I don't know, a couple years ago, that the New Testament only chronicles about 23 days in the life of Jesus.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think in the end, I think people have underestimated. Bill, would you agree? You do this every day. You're talking to people all the time. You're you're examining, um, um, you know, kind of issues related to Christianity all the time. Uh, I get a sense sometimes that we're not even aware of our own... History. Am I? Do you get that sense too? No, completely. And I, and I think that we've kind of lost the value of, of, of what I mean. I think if people look in a pejorative way at Christian history, right? This 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 kind of history of patriarchy or history of of of, of expansion and 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 um, you know this idea that we have. But to be honest, so many of the values that almost everyone cherishes. You cherish them because, if nothing else, you're still living in the shadow of a Christian culture. You're still living in the shadow of, a, of a, a Christian nation. And so a lot of that – so I wanted to do two things. You know, One, reconstruct But how much impact has he had. But lots of other people have done that, but they've not looked at that impact and said, could you – like, for example, I did not go through univer- uh, um, medical – you could talk, for example, about the, the care that has been given to the poor – Uh, by Christians over the years, that uh, our medical facilities have largely been inspired and motivated by Christians in places all over the world. But because medicine constantly recreates its architecture and recreates its its facilities, I can't reconstruct the story of Jesus necessarily in that way. But you can on campuses. And that's why I was kind of like picking those areas that not only could I show his impact, but I could also reconstruct his story.
0: Well. Uh, Jim, we're going to take a break here in just a, a minute. I, a listener wanted to know, and this is a question about your faith and how did that help you deal with a lot of darkness and ugliness of murder and cold cases?
1: Okay, for sure. Let's do it.
0: You give the answer now. If oh, he, oh, I'm if sorry. You think it's tweak it out for, in 90 seconds? Got
1: it. Yeah, I can. As a matter of fact, it, it has a big effect. I'll tell you why. And I talked mean, this before. If you know, we have this illustration in Cold Case Christianity that that I had an illustration of a guy who wasn't wearing a bulletproof vest, and he stood strong during a shooting because he knew he had the vest on, and he had seen the vest stop bullets in advance of the shooting. So, he then had confidence to stand with the vest on to take the rounds because he got caught without his hand on his, on his own gun. He got caught flat footed. Now, what I thought was interesting about that, as I listened to that story, and I was working that case as an officer involved shooting, I thought, wow, look at the confidence you have when you know in advance of a crisis that something is evidentially true. That gives you a different sense of confidence than you yeah, would it have. It sure does. And so, I think part of it for me has been, and I think my own kids would say the same thing that there may be a season of doubt where you think not doubt, but like maybe you're under a challenge, and you're like, "Where is God in this?" you know like i don't I wish I had better clarity as to where God is in this setting, right And I may not have an answer for that, but because I have good evidence that got me here I'm not just this has never been wishful thinking for me. This has never been, I'll just lean in and try to try harder, you know. Yeah. I, I've known it's true evidentially, and that makes a difference.
0: Okay, we got to continue this, because there's more to mine here in this one. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest, and I'm so glad he's uh, with us today. He's got a new book coming out, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That uh, Rejects the Bible. We'll be right back. you could win your summer reading list from faith radio with our summer reading bundle giveaway we're giving away stacks of books from amazing christian authors enter to win by july 31st at myfaithradio.com back to the show. I'm so glad to have J. Warner Wallace with me today. Always head over to coldcasechristianity.com to learn more about Jim. That's the place to go. Again, coldcasechristianity.com. We're talking about his upcoming book, Person of Interest, Why Jesus Still Matters in a World that Rejects the Bible. And in Cold, ca- cold Case Christianity, uses this great illustration, you were talking about it before the break, Jim, where uh, there was a field training exercise where a vest was put on a dummy and then they took shots at the vest and everyone watched how the vest absorbed the, the bullets. So then you had to put it on and really walk out your faith. And a colleague of yours had to uh, take bullets once and and the vest absorbed the bullets. And I think there's more to the story.
1: Well, and I think a lot of that too, is, is I want you to think about that for a second. Uh, there's options we have, right? Like he could have run... He could have ducked. He could have risked his life by trying to charge the suspect. This guy got a drop on him and pulled his gun out on, on the officer before the officer could pull his own gun. So he knew he was going to be behind the shooting by a couple of rounds. And so the question is, what do I do in that? I know I'm going to be under fire. So what do I do? You know if he'd have moved too dramatically or tried to duck for all you know, he could catch it in the head, you know right. He's, I mean, most of the time it seems like we're unlucky enough that you know, we'll shoot 15 rounds and barely hit the guy, and they'll shoot one round and his right right between the eyes, right? So you have to be kind of careful in those situations. So I think what's interesting is the parallel for me is that when I was I was a Christian by the time let's see, is that, yeah, I was a Christian by the time I did that case. So I remember thinking as I was talking to him, I'm in the parking lot where the shooting occurred. And he'd already suffered through this, you know, he'd already been through the shooting. And so he's standing there waiting for me to get there to interview him. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, wow, this is the b- difference between belief that and belief in, right? Because you can believe that the, the best will stop bullets, but it's not until you have to trust. It's like, kind of like, you know, you can believe that a plane will get you to Dallas, but until you get in the plane, mm-hmm. you're not trusting it to get you to Dallas. And there's a sense in which, you know, that, that that's a big, for a lot of people – they might hold belief that i wonder if that's what our problem is in in our country as far as christendom in some ways is that we are you know 80% christians maybe who have belief that this has some value that aspects of christianity are true that you know they they are familiar with the story of jesus but that doesn't give you belief in uh, that that move from belief that to belief in is 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 necessary right that 's what saving faith is all about, and so that 's why I think it's much easier to abandon something that's inconvenient if you don't have belief in it if you just have belief that if you 've never put your trust in if you 've never um not tested god i shouldn't say it that way and it' never um stepped out in faith in such a way that you just you knew that your own power was going to be insufficient that God was going to have to step in the gap um, then you may not have this kind of faith we're talking about that that faith that survives a shooting so so I think a lot of this is how it is helpful to to see the difference right between belief that and belief in
0: Jim when we engage with uh, atheists or people that are just completely uninformed about uh, Truths of the Bible, and you say something like what the Bible says, and they go, "Okay, that's enough. We're done." Uh, anything yeah. you say from the Bible, I, I'm not interested in.
1: No, listen, I, I think that was me, um, and a lot of it's because uh, I, I I would take people to jail who would like quote Bible verses to me from the back seat while they're in cuffs on the way to jail, and I just thought, um, you know, first of all, everyone's got something they think is scripture, right? If you're a Mormon you'll point to the Book of Mormon. If you're mm-hmm. a Muslim, you'll point to the Quran. You know, there's everyone's got their scripture. Um and most and one thing you can say with certainty is that they could all be wrong, but they can't all be true because they all are self contradictory. They all, you know, they contradict each other. So the question then becomes well why should I believe any of this? As a non believer, why should I believe any of this especially if Look, I think I've told you before, the two kinds of Christians I was most familiar with were the ones I worked with who could not offer a, a really a satisfying defense of what they believed as Christians, and the the people who were taken to jail who would tell me they were Christians. So so either it, this is not defendable you – can't, you can't defend it – or you can't live it, because it seems like I'm not seeing anybody do either one of those things. And so for me, it was – I wasn't going to let you open your book um, – especially if the book was filled with what I thought were impossibilities, which were all the miracle stories. I, I was a very committed super, uh, a very committed naturalist, philosophical naturalist. I did not believe in miracles. And I just thought that that genre, the minute I saw a miracle in the genre of that book you were, you were reading to me, I, I considered it to leap from history to, to mythology. So, so if you're going to read me stories about miracles – well, you might as well read me Grimm's fairy tales or, or some other fictitious, fictitious, you know, mythology, because that clearly uh, historical accounts do not include miracles. And I would have said that at that point.
0: So how do I keep you interested into a conversation about spiritual things?
1: Well, here's what I would say. Uh, what, there's many ways in, many ways to start to bite this apple, Um first of all, you can talk about the fact that you actually do believe in some things that are extra natural because you believe, I mean, most people uh, are the standard cosmological model of, of the universe is is that everything came into existence from nothing. Everything, meaning all space, time, and matter came into existence from nothing. There was no space, time, or matter before the beginning of the universe. And there's several lines of evidence that point to this. And that's why that is the standard cosmological model amongst cosmologists and astrophysicists. So, so then the question becomes, well, What is it then that could be sufficiently powerful that must, by definition, be outside of space, time, and matter that could cause the beginning of the universe? Because anything that has a beginning must have a cause. Anything that begins to exist uh, necessitates a cause for its beginning. And so you already, if you believe in Big Bang cosmology, you already think there's something out there that's strong enough to cause everything in the universe to come into existence from nothing. Now, the only question then is, is that thing personal? or impersonal you can make an argument for that so there's ways to cut that pie uh, from a different angle another way you might say it though is to say well look you know it turns out if the bible's true it will accurately describe the world the way it really is and it turns out that that who we are as humans is accurately described on the pages of scripture um, it turns out the gospel and the truth is described about our fallen human nature Uh, is is a cure for a lot of things that that ALS right now as a country Um, all the things we're seeing right now that deal with race relations um, all the stupid things you see anybody do in any category, it turns out the gospel addresses pretty much every form of stupid that's out there. If it's cop stupid or not cop, cop stupid it's addressed by the gospel it turns out that gospel will solve all of the problems satisfactorily and it has really the only power to do so and uh, there's you know again if you think that that we somehow are so in, innately good and we are only corrupted by systems and if i can change the system i will solve the problem you're not paying attention to human nature you know that kids don't need to be taught to be selfish They they emerge selfish. We come out of the womb uh, as feisty little creatures who are only concerned about our own own comfort, our own desires. You get to teach those kinds of values to children because they are not born with those kinds of values. It turns out the problem is not the system because any system that contains the nasty little things called humans will ultimately fail because we will corrupt it. So what I think about, well, if if we are in a situation where we've got a systemic problem – I'm not confident that changing the system would solve the problem because it's not that we have a systemic problem. It's that we have an innate human problem of sin that corrupts no matter what system we put it in. So when I look at people who uh, talk about systemic anything, my only only concern is I don't think you have a proper foundational worldview that will help you solve the problem. Because if you think you can just apply another system to it, good luck with that. Be the first time in history because you're fighting the thing we call human nature, and we are fallen by nature. Now it turns out Christianity describes humans the way we really are, and it provides answers that only the gospel can provide.
0: Mm-hmm. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. He's wrote his book during COVID called "Person of Interest: Why Jesus Still Matters in a World That Rejects the Bible." He wrote that in front of a roaring fire. Is that a one chord or a two chord? Uh, f- firewood book
1: <laughs> well we're in california how cool could it be here? that's okay, true it's like a half a chord okay? <laughs> <laughs> it's, right. it's not even a full cord. i just have
0: that image of you sitting by the fire dog at your feet writing this book it's a it's a good image
1: oh i'm glad we were making soup a lot during that time oh, that, sounds lovely. that. sounds lovely sounds
0: yes. lovely um let's talk about fuse and fallout we i'd mentioned that earlier and i have not gotten back to it yet now i'd like to return to that
1: Sure, sure. That, that that is actually a good way to kind of determine. You know, most most murders, there's something that builds. I mean, not everyone, but I mean, especially if you've got a husband and wife, uh, it seems like, oh, well, I didn't even realize this was happening because it took a, a long period of time, right, until something does break. And and there are often people along the way who can tell you little things about that build, that that slow build of pressure that eventually explodes on the day of a murder. And what you see in the fuse of history, for example, and I tried to identify three different aspects of this fuse in the book you see that not only does culture align and world governments align, but also Jewish prophecy aligns and the history of mythology. That is, In other words, other people groups are worshiping gods of their own creation that seem to share common attributes that are only personified in totality in Jesus of Nazareth. And if you look at the overlap of when these things occur in history, you will see that if somebody was to arrive in a period of time that's about 100 years, about 30 years before Jesus was born and about 70 years after, 29 B.C. to about 70 A.D., and I'll show you this in the book, you'll see that there was an opportunity for someone to arrive in that small window that would change the world forever. It just so happens that Jesus arrives in that small window of opportunity, and that's a I call that a red zone. And, and when you work cases, you're looking at all the factors involved in a case, and you timeline them all out, and you develop a red zone when you would expect that bomb to go off, given everything you know from the fuse and everything you know from the fallout. You can kind of get a red zone where you think that murder is probably going to occur. Did the same thing with Jesus, and if you and I, did, by the way, didn't have no idea that red zone was there. I was just starting to examine the fuse and see what it tells me. And I'm like, oh my goodness, do you see what this – I told Susie, I said, look, look at this. There is a red zone of about 100 years here that is the overlap of culture, mythology, and prophecy that gives us a moment where I would expect if I knew these three three, three aspects of the fuse, I could have red zoned this before it ever happened and told you something's going to happen right here. And sure enough, that it did happen right there.
0: Wow. So – in the new testament i think about 90 plus times jesus says follow me and i'm thinking when you talk about following christ surrendering to christ i look at the way we've been doing christianity for maybe the last 50 years it seems like we've we've got a, an evangelism department and a discipleship department is that like a 7 10 split that we wow. that we should we should have always kept it as one follow me um, it seems like a lot of people are evangelized, and then somewhere down the road, they've got to go get discipled.
1: Well, and you know, I think we talked about this before, you know that if you don't do this well, um, you, you don't actually achieve the goal, because you can introduce someone to Jesus as, as a notion and get to believe that. And you can even get somebody to say, okay, I, I, I want to put my trust in Jesus. But putting trust in Jesus is an active—it's a, it's a series of activities that you do over a lifetime, and so, you know, that salvation, justification occurs in the blink of an eye. But sanctification is something you spend your whole life doing. And we, we've seen this historically after the Second Great Awakening here in America. So many um, errant views of Christianity emerged from Jehovah's Witnesses ultimately or spring out of that period of time. Mormonism springs out of that period of time. What's happening is you've got roaming evangelists who are bringing people to – sharing the gospel with people in huge settings You know where they're out in open-air preaching, but not enough churches in place to do the hard work of mm-hmm. discipling people who now want to know who's Jesus. And they'll they'll fall for other stories about Jesus because they have not been properly discipled. In the, and by, by the way, that's been going on for 2,000 years. Okay. What is Paul writing about in all of his letters? I mean, if not for people apostatizing quickly and, and turning to a false god, turning to some false notion of Jesus, would Paul have even written his letters? I mean, thank God that was happening because it turns out that's was the catalyst for Paul writing all these letters to try to pull people back to the truth. And I think that's so powerful that our fallen nature is such that we can't even hold on to something for a week without having to go. That's why I love the fact that we have Scripture and why daily disciplines of reading through the Scripture and prayer are so critical to growth as a Christian. Not even just to growth, to to staying true as a Christian, to staying the course, to not wandering off track. Right, You know that old expression, if you try to cross a field by looking at your feet, you end up you know, walking in circles and crooked lines. But if you can simply put your eyes on a tree on the other side of the field and focus on that object, you will get across the field in a straight line in the surest, fastest possible way. I think sometimes in America, we're, all of us, I mean, we, we're guilty of looking at our feet instead of being focused on the Word of God and letting that be the thing that, that shapes us, that mm-hmm. changes us.
0: Yeah. Jim, let me take one last break. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. The book we're chatting about is called Person of Interest. It's not quite out yet, but it will be soon. You can pre order it. And we'll be uh, right back in 90 seconds. so much for listening to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Hey, I'm Suzy Larson. If you enjoy what you're finding here, consider subscribing to some of our other Faith Radio podcasts, like mine, for instance. You can search Suzy Larson Live at MyFaithRadio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hit subscribe and have a great day. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have J. Warner Wallace with me today. He's written a new book called Person of Interest. You can go to personofinterestbook.com. You can download a free chapter and you can uh, learn about the book. He, uh, Jim sifted through all kinds of evidence from history alone without relying on the New Testament. And that truth about Jesus can be uncovered even without that information. It's fascinating. I'm excited to get the book. I'm going to get the download. I'm going to download the sample chapter tonight and Put on the fire and make some soup and read that, read that chapter. Why not, Jim? Why not?
1: Maybe we'll start. I, I was never a soup eater until the COVID hit, you know, and suddenly we were like, we made every version of soup you could make. I mean, if you, first of all, you couldn't find anything in the stores. So we just thought whatever we can find, right. we'll make soup with that, right? So, yeah, yeah, that's what we did. What, for ended, sure.
0: what ended up being your, uh, your, your favorite?
1: Um, well, there's a couple of soups you can make with, like, uh, with cilantro. There's a okay. cilantro soup you can make that's pretty good. And then you you take uh, tortilla chips, and then instead of noodles, you pour tortilla chips on top. So it's mm. kind of like a tortilla chip soup. Yeah. And that is our, I our, like our end up being our favorite. It's half salsa and half chicken broth. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> You're not. This is nothing we should be talking about. On that's true. Idea.
0: That's true. But I've got ideas yeah. for dinner now. All of a sudden. Yeah, so exactly. I want to go back to uh, just this evangelism discipleship. Uh, yeah. Duality only because it seems like there 's a lot of Christians that you know hear about john three sixteen and they get they get their born again saved experience, but they're they 're not discipled and so they end up without a really solid foundation on which they can grow their faith and they 're open to um, false teaching and i 'm concerned that 's not what jesus um, had in mind. When he well, said, Follow
1: I mean, me. you, you could argue the entire progressive Christian movement is really a result of, of heresy that comes out of um, improper discipleship, right? I mean, you could argue that that is probably why we are where we are when the culture looks more like – when the church looks more like the culture – uh, then the culture is shaped toward the church. We got a problem, right? But that I guess there's a sense in which I, I kind of expected that anyway, because Jesus seems to have expected that as well—that there, that there'd be a narrow gate and that not everyone who says that they are, you know, doing miracles in Jesus' name, will actually be known by Jesus. But I think that's the fear. I mean, that's one of the more sobering uh, verses in all of Scripture, right? This idea that Jesus would say, you know, get away from me, I never knew you. Um, And and that's the biggest fear I would always have is that, hey, I don't want to – I don't want to get this wrong. It's not that that, that um, systematic theology is what saves me, but 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 certainly the truth about what saves me will will be reflected in the theology that I embrace. And so I think that there is. Look at it this way: if I told you I was uh, a big fan of uh, the Vikings, okay, their Minnesota Vikings, yet I told you I love their quarterback and I, and I misname him. It's not even him, isn't it? Nick Foles playing for you guys as quarterback? No, I love Nick not. Foles, no. and I go on and on and on about <laughs> it. You're going to say to me, "Well, you might love the the, the Vikings, but." It turns out people who love the Vikings. Could probably name every dang player on the Vikings. Right. Well, why is it we can do that, yet we cannot under, we cannot you know, build a case for why we think our faith in Jesus is is correct or what we believe about Jesus is correct? We can argue what we believe about the Vikings is correct, but we have a harder time arguing. Well, it's because we. And by the way, don't you think that that God knows, like your wife knows? You can say I love you, I love you, but I never spend any time with you. Well, it turns out I, probably whatever you're spending your time on, that's what you really love. You know, you can tell me you love me, but if you never want to be around and you're constantly playing golf, I'm suspicious you might love golf more than you love me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's fair. It's a fair suspicion. And that's also true, I think, the idolatry of the mind where we, we just focus on the things that are so, so fleeting and so meaningless. I mean a lot of the discourse, a lot of the clickbait discourse on social media really doesn't have eternal consequences. Um, yet we don 't we, we spend more time on the gossip of who did what when and how who knew what when, and all of that that seems to be more important to us than. Can we make a case for the triune nature of God, the deity of Christ? Do we believe that there are certain um, aspects are true about you know, what, what it is to be saved and, and, and how, to, how, we, how are we to be conformed to the image of Jesus over the years? What would that even look like? What does that even mean? How does that shape what we believe about, about current events? Well, I'm not going to focus much on the current events. I want to first focus on the foundation that I'm standing on before I start thinking about current events. And so I need to focus on what does Jesus teach about certain key aspects of identity, of sexuality, of all the things that you might think are hot-button issues. Well, it turns out that Jesus has something to say about those things. Um, And so we might want to be paying attention to that first. And most of us, you know, we kind of – I don't know what we're thinking. I don't know what it is we're – can we even go back and say, well, based on this passage of Scripture, I hold this view. Most of us can't do that because we don't even know what that passage of Scripture says. I know. So it's a, it's important, I think, that that discipleship. Look, it's not a matter of me saying, well, I have to know this in order to be saved. It's just that when I think of what's been done for me, I have to respond. I, I find myself responding in a certain way, not because I'm, I'm focused on the response, but because I'm focused on what was done for me, and it generates a response. That's a difference.
0: I do a lot of work with men in recovery, and every once in a while I will do this little experiment where I will play— maybe a second to a second and a half, the start of a song and the speed at which they can tell me what song it is. I know. Is, I know. Uh, and I'm saying to them, are you telling me that your mind can't respond to God's word in a moment when you feel tem- temptation or struggle? Because you can recall these songs in a second.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's about willful submission. Yeah. It's about, are we willing to, so you're a slave to something. Oh yeah, uh, and not the things we're talking about. You have to be you're like up like against your will because there are some things we have to do in life because that's just the nature of going to work and doing all the responsibilities we have. But there's lots of other stuff that we voluntarily submit to, and and that's what you got you know. You know we're, my wife and I are working through Romans right now in our in our daily study, and and you'll if you read the first six chapters of Romans, you'll see that a lot of languages, a lot of language related to slavery is in there, but it's what you are voluntarily enslaved to when you don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a, it's a choice about about um, what it is you will allow to control your thoughts. A lot of the times, uh, yeah, I could respond to Scripture, I know the Scripture, but I'm not willing to submit to it. <laughs> and that's I mean, it's true for all of us. I mean, I struggle with that too, right? Um, but but I think that's part of the the struggle that we have to be aware of. It's it's really about what are we voluntarily submitting to.
0: Jim, how do we get better at listening to each other versus just exchanging conclusions with each other?
1: Uh, boy, that well, we have to stop— patterning our conversations, patterning our interactions of the social media environment. Because if, if that's what's happening right now. Our discourse has become more and more vile, more and more uh, kind of um, entrenched in our tribalism and less and less inclined to listen empathetically to the other side because we're really posturing to say, like, like, we are in a meme versus meme world. <laughs> and, and we kind of like look at each other and say, well, how can I take that thing you just said and mock you with it uh, rather than uh, and this is – sadly, I see this even on Facebook amongst family members who will p- position it. But at the same time, I'm also not going to swing at people by taking a, a view on social media that just basically begs for a violent response, right? I mean I'm very careful about what kinds of things – I want to leave the gospel opportunity open. And my fear is that if I say certain things in certain ways, I will shut down the conversation before I could ever get to the gospel. So I, I get it. I'm struggling myself with that comment with, with that that relationship between, you know, uh, I want to address cultural social issues, but I know the foundation that solves every version of stupid is the gospel. So I could, if I'm not careful, I'm going to miss it. You know, I'm going to miss the opportunity because I'm so focused on on what is the hot topic, you know, clickbait issue, uh, rather than, you know, how do I ease into sharing the gospel with people? And I think that's why I I, I typically, I might have a position about something that I just saw on TV, but I'm not going to rush over to social media and post about it. I'm just not. Uh, Those are the things that are in my head. They don't need to be on my social media page. Um, and I see lots of things i 'm like, oh my gosh you 've got to be kidding me really how am I, really And I feel like like just like saying this, let me show you how stupid this is, but I know that to do that is going for some people going to in the end, if I can convince you that the Bible is true and you ought to take it seriously we 're going to end up agreeing on that issue that I find so offensive so better for me to spend time talking about those other two things, which are way way upstream, right yeah. from the, the the hot button hot button issue.
0: Yeah. Jim, thank you so much for your time. I feel like you're so generous with me. I appreciate you very much.
1: Well, you know we have a special relationship though. So I know we do. That's <laughs> true. <So, laughs> so I'll be talking to you next month. Okay? All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. All right, brother. Yep. Thanks.
0: Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest. If you go to personofinterestbook.com, you can download the first chapter of his book. It's coming out soon. And you can also head over to coldcasechristianity.com. dot com. Jim's got all kinds of books and blogs and videos and all kinds of great resources there. And you can check it out, coldcasechristianity.com. Take a little break, but when we come back, Dr. Peter Kaftner will be joining me for our Wednesday Sunburnt series. We're going to talk to Beth Guckenberger and Rob Hall. We're going to talk about trauma. That's all coming up next. (music) ¶¶